impactful stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is the Sporting Life with Jeremy Shap on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome to another edition of the Sporting Life. Coming up later in the show, a conversation with Sam Cunningham. The USC fullback made history 50 years ago this weekend in a historic game in Birmingham, Alabama. But first, in this segment, we are going to attempt to sell as many books as possible written by my estimable colleague, the great Ryan McGee. His new book is Sidelines and Bloodlines, A Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football. There's a great blurb on the back of the book. Ryan McGee is a master storyteller who imbues all his work with wit, warmth, and brains. It goes on at great length about just how great the book is and how great Ryan McGee is. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, Ryan McGee. Ryan, thank you for being with us. And that blurb written by um, someone, I think it, it's Jeremy uh, Jeremy uh, Shape. Shape uh, is really it, it's great. No, it's it's and and, uh, <laughs> and honestly, the, the the rest of the book is downhill once you if you start from the back cover. I was hoping you would say that actually. All right, uh, let, let, let's act, let's talk about the book. I mean, we could just chat. Why does college football mean so much to you, Ryan? I literally grew up on sidelines. My father, right around the time I was born. My dad was already working small college games after a, he'd done years in, in North Carolina high school football. And then about the time I hit my preteen years, he was he was an ACC official. I mean, he was going to Clemson, and he was going to Virginia, and he was going to Auburn to work North Carolina at Auburn. And, and, and I had my first sideline credential when I was 13 years old. I mean, I had a camera that Santa Claus brought me, and I'm standing on the <laughs> sideline with photographers from the Washington Post, and it was unbelievable. And you know what I'm talking about, which is it is impossible, the gift of being behind the yellow rope a little bit. I mean, you can't put a price on it. It's, it, it changed the direction of my life. That I mean, that day, I, I joke, but that first time I had a sideline credential at Virginia, a top 10 matchup, Barry Word scored the game winning touchdown. I took wow. a great picture of it. And then the linebacker. Future All-Pro with the Kansas the, City Chiefs, I believe, yeah. right? That's it, yeah. And uh, he and Okoye were in the backfield together. That's and, right. And Barry Word drove over the pylon, scored the game-winning touchdown, and then the linebacker who missed uh, Word hit me and cleaned my clock. And I might have weighed 85 pounds. And everyone, <laughs> everyone thought I was dead. It. Yeah, I popped up, and I was like, everybody's like, are you okay? I'm like, am I okay? This is the greatest thing in the history of the world. How can I get paid to do this? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what it's about. It's just That's just how much I love it because it's just it's part of – my family. We're speaking with ESPN's Ryan McGee about his new book, Sidelines and Bloodlines, A Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football. And um, in the subtitle, of course, it's the plural, sons. It's not just you, but also your brother, who is part of this story, uh, Sam McGee. And first, I see that Sam is a Yale Law School graduate. What went wrong, Ryan, for you? And your father is a college president, not just an official. I mean, what what... Sports writing, sports broadcasting, it's kind of a come down from that. <laughs> when the McGee family would sit at the table, uh, my brother uh, ha- had his Yale Law degree. My father has a doctorate in education. My mother had a master's. She was a, a, a school teacher for years. And then there's me. Barely got out of uh, my big uh, land-grant university with my degree. And, you know, I'm getting paid to go cover the uh, the goodies, headache, powder, 500. Nothing wrong with so. land-grant universities. I am a proud graduate of a land-grant university as well, Mr. McGee. 
and I'm proud of it. But when I sat at my table, I brought the team GPA down. I'm like, you know, I'm, I was the one who – and, and just the, the, the average – the number of degrees at the table, I brought that average down and sort of proudly. We've discussed this. I mean, I like college football. I appreciate the history. I think I know more about it than most. But I grew up in New York in an era in which, you know, the teams in the area weren't great. Uh, it wasn't the 1940s with West Point, which I guess is – the closest D1A team to where I grew up, Rutgers, about, meh, Piscataway might be a little closer than West Point, or it might be exactly, whatever it is, the point is not college football. For somebody who's from the Southeast in particular, you know, who grew up around the game in the way that you did, how would you describe its cultural hold in the places where it is most popular? It connects with people in the Southeastern United States, and in the Southwest on a different level because we didn't have pro sports teams. If you grew up in the Carolinas like I did, you had the Redskins on television every weekend. No one pulled for the Falcons, and that was kind of it. You know, we were all Braves fans because the the Braves were on cable, you know, and, and were broadcast all over the Southeast. That's kind of it. So, you know, your identity is tied up in who is your team. And what's interesting is is that everyone, and rightfully so, they obsess with, you know, are you a Clemson fan? Are you a South Carolina fan? Are you Georgia, Georgia Tech, you know, Alabama, whatever. But the graduates of Appalachian State and Western Carolina and Georgia Southern and Furman, they are just as passionate about their connection because it has so much to do with your identity. If you are a Southerner and you meet someone at a party, your first question is, what's your name? Your second question is, where do you live? And your third question is, where did you go to school? And fair or unfair, that's kind of how you judge people. And uh, is, is not only how is their team now, but how has their team been historically. And so that's what it is. You know, we didn't have the Mets and the Yankees and the Giants and the Rangers and the Islanders and the Jets and everyone else. Don't what forget we had the Devils was, and the Nets. Don't and, forget the right, Devils okay, and the uh, Nets right. and the Knicks. And, and, so, and, and then the shocking thing, Jeremy, was when I moved to Bristol, Connecticut, out of college to work at ESPN, within the campus of ESPN, college football was a very big deal. Once you stepped outside the gate, I couldn't find a game on the radio. Everybody was already talking about the Jets and the Patriots the next day. And so it was uh, it was an interesting cultural experience for me moving north as opposed to all the northerners who've moved south to live near me. We're speaking with Ryan McGee about college football in general and more specifically his new book, Sidelines and Bloodlines, A Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the sport now because it seems to be at a crossroads. Obviously, there is the pandemic. There are conferences deciding not to play this fall, conferences deciding they will play. We are in an age of empowerment for college athletes, college football players banding together in a way we've never seen before to represent their own interests. What do you think lies ahead for the game you love so much? It's a great question, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And again, going back to my father, Dr. Jerry McGee, he was the president at Wingate University, which is a Division II school uh, in eastern North Carolina. He was president of that school for almost 25 years. I grew up on college campuses because my dad was a college administrator. And he was the Division II representative on the NCAA President's Council, which is that's the super friends. I mean, that's the group that makes the decisions. And he told me 20 years ago, sitting in that room, and talked about he's sitting in the room with 
father, whomever was the president of Notre Dame at the time, and you know Gordon Gee at Ohio State, and and all the presidents from these huge universities, and he could kind of see what was coming. And and in talking to Dad also about, he's retired now, but talking to him about his consulting with university presidents about how they've handled the reopening of campuses, and quite frankly, how so many of them have handled it in the wrong way. But this empowerment of the athletes has been coming for a long time, and because of the pandemic because of Black Lives Matter, it all, and I believe, thankfully so, has come to a head. And, you know, the athletes are, have a voice. I, I say all the time, Jeremy, you know this, the, the beauty of the Internet is everyone has a voice. The terrible thing about the Internet is everyone has a voice. <laughs> but in this case, I think it's a great thing that the athletes have a voice. And they take their cues from the athletes that they hope to be one day, you know, in the NFL and, and, and the NBA and baseball. And so – it is absolutely a critical time. And, oh, by the way, you know, name, image, and likeness, this was all happening back in the spring, you know, when the world shut down. And it hasn't gone away. And it's certainly not going to go away. And it certainly is just going to have, you know, an entire new pile of kindling on the fire you know, when we start paying attention to that when, when things return somewhat to normal. So it is a critical time. But I think at the end of the day, the people who make the decisions, yes, there's money and, yes, there's power. But I really believe in my heart that most of these coaches still do it because they love it. And the athletes still do it because they love it. And I know the officials on the field, they do it because they love it. And I hope that the people who genuinely love it in the end went out because uh, that's the only way it's going to survive in some way, shape, or form that we fell in love with in the first place. Ryan McGee, his new book, one more time, Sidelines and Bloodlines. Ryan, uh, love talking to you. Thank you so much. Congrats on the book. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Straight Talk Wireless. No commitment, no compromise. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Just as you don't have to be a fan of baseball to appreciate the writing of Roger Angel or a fan of boxing to appreciate the writing of A.J. Liebling or Joyce Carol Oates or Ralph Wiley when they write about the subject, you certainly don't have to be, but it helps to be a fan of tennis when you are reading the great Christopher Clary, long of the New York Times, who is covering this uh, most unusual of U.S. Opens, not from the press box in Queens, in Flushing, but from his home north of Boston. And it's a pleasure to welcome back to The Sporting Life my old friend and someone I admire very much, Chris Clary. Chris, thank you for being with us. Hey, Jeremy. It's always a pleasure. It's been a long time since 1992 in the Olympics when we met. <laughs> oh, my God. That's right. It's been 28 years since we were together working for NBC in the research room. But it seems like in tennis in some ways, it might not be 1992, but it might as well be 2001, uh, when you talk about Serena and the three men at the top, what is this like for you covering an open and writing as much as ever from what is it, about 215 miles away, I would guess, you know, by roads, probably 170 as the crow flies? It is strange. I kind of wish it felt stranger, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I mean, so much, so much, so much of the, uh, of the life today, you know, and even on site at these tournaments. I always try to make an effort to get out and watch the tennis live because it is a privilege and it does help you understand the geometry of it and the uh, dynamic of it. But a lot of it, because of deadline, you are sitting in front of the screen in the press room at Wimbledon or Roland Garros or wherever it is. So in a sense, it isn't entirely foreign. 
And the other thing that's strange, of course, the reason I decided not to go was a combination of personal reasons and also uh, there was no access to the players directly because of the quarantine there or the isolation. They wouldn't let the print journalists do anything in person. So it seemed to me this factor just wasn't worth it. So you are missing something, but then again, kind of everybody is, and we're looking at this unusual tournament in an unusual way, ultimately. And we're speaking with Christopher Clary, the New York Times. So, so what is it like for you? How do you cover it? Nuts and bolts of it are really, you know, you're watching matches on multiple screens, on laptops and television screens, and you are calling the same people I'd be calling anyway from a press room anywhere in the world, my contacts, looking for, you know, stuff that's behind the scenes, looking for news stories that will break. I guess the strangest thing is we're interviewing the players through Zoom. You know, Serena wins a big match. Usually you wait inside the cavernous interview room at the U.S. Open, which I'm sure you know, and you wait for them to come in and you have a a 3D experience. And now it's very 2D and um, lucky if you can get a question in and they don't have any flow and there's, you don't have any kind of, you know, human contact in the room to create any kind of atmosphere in in an interview. It's not a great way to work in that regard. But as far as following the action and understanding sometimes what's actually happening on the court with the players muttering and making you know comments to their coaches or even to each other, you know sometimes seeing that stuff on television is actually better than being in the stadium because you, yes, you get the feel and you see the geometry, like I said, but you don't get the mutterings and the utterances, and that can be important too. It seems uh, in some ways a lot like covering the Tour de France for many, you know, because you can't really be out on the course. You're kind of in a press room watching it on TV unfold. And if if you're one of the reporters who understands French, all the better, because you could hear the French commentary, such as yourself. I am not among those. But it's kind of it's kind of like um, covering the Tour de France, right, without it being catered, it seems like. <laughs> I'm trying to do some take you know what I mean? Not as good as Paris catering or Paris takeout, but I'm doing some up here north of Boston. So, but it, I, I could not imagine doing it this way if I didn't have the background that I have. I mean, if I hadn't covered 90 plus Grand Slam tournaments and I hadn't didn't have a, a Rolodex full of context, I don't know how somebody doing it for the first time could, could bring anything really to the equation because they don't have the they don't have the context. We're speaking to Christopher Clary again of the New York Times. Chris, you're so deeply embedded in the sport. You know the key players so well and have for so long. So what is up with Novak Djokovic? Novak likes to give long answers, and his life is a long answer. It's kind of, I guess that's one way to put it. I mean, it's, it's sort of the way it is. He's a guy who, if you ask him a straightforward question, often will go on for, you know, 10 paragraphs because he's just got a lot of thoughts and a lot of uh, things going on up there. And I'm sure Roger and Rafa, the best comparisons as, as ever, do as well. I just think they... They have a bit more of a filter. I think they probably have a better sense of how things are going to play in the public domain than Novak does. And ultimately, Novak is somebody who just has a very different background than those guys and comes from a a hard scrabble background from the time when Serbia was an international pariah. His dad slapped, I think he told me a story when I interviewed him a couple times ago, slapping, I think it was a 10 Deutschmark bill on the table and saying to the family, this is it. Those kind of experiences are formative and they, they shape the character and so Novak still has a bit of that me against the world uh, mentality in him. And I think that's come out again sometimes in, in recent months. It, it always comes out in some way, even though he's fighting it himself with his meditation and his deep Zen garden approach to life recently. But he's he's a guy who has a lot of, uh, I think, internal conflicts he's trying to resolve. And, and I think he also often means well, but then things go awry for a variety of reasons. And in this last uh, hiatus from tennis, which was about five months, obviously he had an exhibition tour that went awry. He was trying to you know, raise money for players, which is a worthy cause, but did it, I think, in a very tone-deaf way and ended up with coronavirus positives right and left, including his own and his wife. 
I do think from having interviewed him just before the U.S. Open that he's, I guess, more at peace with that than he has been in the past. I think he re- recognizes that if he's going to be true to himself, he's going to rub some, maybe even many the wrong way. But he seems to have come to maybe that mid-30s feeling that that's okay. Talk about um, coming to a head, a flashpoint, uh, hitting the line, Judge. What is the takeaway when, when someone, it's simply like intent doesn't matter, right? The recklessness wouldn't have mattered as much if, there, if he hadn't if he hit the, the line umpire in the toe or had glanced off her shin and she had just immediately shaken it off and said, no big deal. He might have gotten by with a warning, although that would have been a judgment call. But the way it turned out, it was not a judgment call. He endangered her. His move was him hit it terribly hard. He had hit it harder against the side fence earlier in the match. Clearly unintentional in my book, but the precedent in tennis is simple. I mean, you look at the Tim Henman, Denis Shapovalov, David Nalbandi and others, they've all been ejected from matches, defaulted after similar incidents. So I don't see why he'd be any different. Does it come down to now, uh, and correct me if I've, I've got my numbers wrong, Federer is sitting at 20. Nadal is sitting at 19. And Novak Djokovic is sitting at 17. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So when you've got three guys um, overlapping, and of course there's no precedent for something like this, is it going to come down to just who ends up with the highest total being regarded the greatest ever? Or is there more to it than that? Well, I guess it depends partly who, what the final total is. I mean, based on the fact <laughs> the that point. they really are you know, playing. If you're looking at Novak with 23 or 24 and the rest and Rogers at 20 and Rafa's at 20, plus everything else, I mean, that, that's a pretty important argument. If they all end up around the same place, then it comes down to more nuances and whether, you know, the fact that Rogers won a bunch of ATP tour finals, which is the fifth most important event on the, the circuit a bunch of times and Rafa hasn't won it at all. Or the fact that, you know, Rogers has been an incredible ambassador for the sport and raised his profile everywhere, right and left for years and creates an enormous amount of goodwill and, is that a tiebreaker in a situation where you're talking about the greatest, whatever that means? And then you have a guy like Nadal, who just uh, is an incredible point-by-point competitor who has been through adversity right and left physically that the other guys have not had to face and overcome it. And um, also is a heck of a, I think, a gentlemanly presence, although not everybody likes his on-court demeanor, but I, I find him a remarkable individual. So that, all those things are factors, I think, but one of them separates themselves. I think you're going to see uh, if Novak were to end up with 24 and those head-to-head edges, be hard to argue for me. Well, it, it's always it's always a pleasure speaking to you, sir. Catching up on the world of tennis and um, the historic events taking place for all the wrong reasons right now. Chris Clary of the New York Times. Thank you so much, sir. Jeremy, great to hear from you, and great to talk with you. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. It was 50 years ago, September 12, 1970, at Legion Field in Birmingham, Alabama. The USC Trojans were in town to open the season against Bear Bryant's Alabama Crimson Tide. And it was arguably one of the most significant games, I would say inarguably, one of the most significant college football games or sports events, uh, period, ever played in this country. It happened this way. In the spring of 1970, the NCAA announced that teams could add an 11th game to their schedule for the 1970 season. Uh, Paul Bryant flew to Los Angeles. He met with John McKay, the USC head coach, and he asked him if he would bring his USC Trojans to Legion Field to open the season. McKay said yes, and history was set in motion. 
And now half a century later, when we talk about that game and the impact that it made, we often start with the man who is now our guest, Sam Cunningham. Sam, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Sam, you were you were um, a sophomore fullback, uh, and in those days, freshmen were ineligible. So you were a rookie going into this, the first game of your varsity career. What did it mean to you um, going to the Deep South in 1970 to Birmingham, Alabama to play this game? Well, it was it was probably something I had hadn't anticipated, but. You know, it was a game that uh, that hopefully I would get a chance to play in and, and, and contribute in some kind of way other than special teams. Uh, I mean, I wasn't real in-depth about it, about how how serious it could be or how it could go sideways or anything of that nature. It was just a football game that uh, I got the opportunity to play in, being at my first varsity game and being uh, – uh, get an opportunity to play against a program like Alabama. Of course, you know, the backdrop is um, the civil rights struggle uh, and and Birmingham's central role, Alabama's central role in that. You were playing a team that was still all white. No black player had ever played for the University of Alabama. At USC, you were one of, I believe, 18 African-Americans on that team. And at USC, you'd had Heisman Trophy winners who were black, Mike Garrett and O.J. Simpson. What had John McKay told you uh, and your teammates about the significance of what was taking place? Well, he didn't really get into any of the of the civil rights uh, uh, conversation or, or anything of that nature. He just explained to us that we we're going to play a very, very great football program and, and, you know, the Crimson Tide and Coach Bryan and, you know, all that spoke for itself. Uh, his, his, his deal was, was that we need to prepare and be ready to play them as hard as we had ever played anybody and, and, and uh, come back with a victory. Now, it was exciting just to be a part of something so special. I don't, I didn't know how special at that time. I'm sure nobody else did. Maybe been a few people who probably thought about it, but wasn't, I wasn't one of them. You were one of the only programs in the country with a black starting quarterback at that point at the top tier of college football. Um, and and um, USC had done something similar going to play Texas more than a decade earlier when Texas was still all white. Um, your parents were both originally from Texas. What... What did they tell you? And we've talked about this before for a TV piece that was on College Game Day. So, so this is for, this is for us kind of a, a second chance to revisit these events. But what 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 did your parents tell you about going to the Deep South? I think this was the first time in your life. Uh, for me, yeah, I think I think maybe we had took a road trip to Texas, but it was probably when I was younger and didn't really pay attention. But um, you know, I asked my dad, you know, about it, you know, because cause I, you know, in high school, I received a recruiting letter from the University of Alabama, and, and that probably didn't last but about 30 seconds for it went in the trash. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was, you know, I asked Pops, I said, Pops, I said, you know, we're getting ready to go to Birmingham, and I mean, you, you understand the culture somewhat. 
and I'm pretty sure I didn't say it like that, but you know, I said what I said. And he, uh, I said, so how should I be? You know, what should I do? And he, he sat around for about five minutes and didn't say anything. Right. So I'm trying to figure out if he heard me or if he was even paying attention. And then he came back and said, don't do anything stupid. So I probably sat around for about five minutes and didn't say anything. And I said, finally, I said, so what you mean is just be respectful of the way things are and remember that I'm not in Santa Barbara. He goes, yeah, you'll be okay. You know what I mean? And so that was his advice. Mom's advice was, you know, she didn't really have any advice. Don't get hurt, you know, so, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, you know, it's football. You get hurt and you keep on pushing. But, uh, you know, that game against Texas was with, was was probably a, a forerunner of what this game was, except that it just wasn't time for change as it was when we played, you know. And uh, C.R. Roberts was the, was the uh, great back that played for us uh, against them. And, and I, I watched film of him and, and them playing Texas, and it was like, man, you know, men against boys, but it was, it was a, it was a foreshadowing deal to that at some point in time, this, all this was going to change. We're speaking with Sam Cunningham, the great USC fullback who would later play nearly a decade in the NFL for the New England Patriots. He's a member of the New England Patriots Hall of Fame, and he is the older brother, of course, of Randall Cunningham, the superb NFL quarterback of the 1980s and 1990s. So, Sam, you guys get down Alabama. I believe on September 11th, 1970, to play this game, <clears throat> opening the season. What was your sense of the feelings of the the black community in Birmingham and, and Alabama at large uh, in terms of this game? Well, I you know I have a sense that the black community was 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 really really interested in this game because there were there was a team that finally had black players coming to play there. You know. Crimson Tide team, which, you know, for some of them, they loved them. And for some of them, they didn't love them. You know what I mean? And, 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 you know, when we landed, we got a chance to ride through the black neighborhood a bit before we went to our hotel. And uh, they were out on the, on their porches and whatnot, waving, even though they couldn't see in the buses and whatnot, but I'm sure they sensed that, you know, it was, it was us and, and there were black players on the team and they were rooting for us. You know, to to go out and just you know, if not win, but to play well against them, you know, and and you know, all that 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 story would be told the next day and uh, or the next evening, I should say. And those fans who ventured to the game could only listen to the game out from outside the stadium. They couldn't buy a ticket and get in, so they were listening to on their transistor radios and in the PA system, and and I'm sure they they. Uh, some had satisfied feelings when it was over with, and some were like mystified about what happened. But anyway, it was it was a great event that 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 really didn't get a lot of attention for about thirty five years, and and now you know coming in it's the fiftieth anniversary, it kind of just slowly oozes into your psyche, and you turn out, oh, I didn't remember that, <laughs> you know. But it is it was a great it's great to be a part of it though. Well, you, you're more than a part of it. Of course, many people associate you first with this game. You you scored two touchdowns. Uh, you you come in for Charlie Evans right at the beginning of the game, right? Right, Sam? 
Yes, yes. And, and, and you scored two touchdowns in the first quarter. You run for 135 yards on 12 carries. And you look at the footage, and I've seen the footage, and um, you know you you just steamrolled over that Alabama team, which included your future Patriots teammate John Hanna, who I think was also playing his first varsity college football game. Of course, he was on offense; you weren't playing directly against him. So, so it's over now. You guys beat them forty-two twenty-one, but by all accounts, it could have been a much bigger margin. Um, what, what what was it? What was it like, um, not only winning that game, but winning it in the fashion in which you did? Well, you know, being my first game, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know. I, I guess I knew Marv Google is assistant coach for the University of Southern California at that time. He was Indian. Willie Brown was assistant coach for the University of Southern California at that time. He's black, so we had an integrated coaching staff, and they always they always talked about how we. We as a, we we as a team should dominate the other team, whether it's at our house or their house. And you know, we took that to heart. We had a pet rally, uh, I think Thursday after practice, and it it prepared us emotionally for for something very very special, you know. And and then Saturday, we were able to uh, let those emotions out and play and go play a football game and against another team that. Uh, you know, has a great program, has a great history, has a great legacy. Um, you know, it uh, it was it was so special in many different ways and so different in many different ways. From a, I don't even know if you could have a football game like that at this point in time. I guess, if, you know, some other than a woman being a quarterback or something of that nature. You know what I mean? Uh, but it was so special to be a part of it for me, as with my teammates, because I was just I was just a baby. I really was. I didn't. I didn't have any clue that I was going to carry the ball. You know, most fullbacks at SC don't carry the ball. Uh, but I got, we got a chance that evening, and we didn't have that much of a chance later that season over the whole season. So anyway, it was, it was uh, you know, to get that call to go in and play was pretty special. And then the opportunity that we finished up with and, and won, it was just a matter of uh, us doing what we, did, we thought we could do as a team. We're joined again by former USC fullback Sam Cunningham, who played such an important role in that game that took place 50 years ago this weekend at Legion Field in Birmingham, USC, defeating Alabama 42-21, to and uh, according to many, accelerating the pace of desegregation, certainly of Alabama football, but also beyond that, and having an impact on race relations. Sam, when the game was over and you'd had this great performance, 135 yards, 12 carries, what did Bear Bryant say to you? Well, you just see, you know, we got a chance uh, to speak with him outside of our locker room. I think it was it was uh, Clarence Davis and Jimmy Jones and myself, and he congratulated us on a uh, on a great game, number one, and that uh, you know, enjoy watching us play. And if I'd had any sense, I would have said, well, you you recruited me. I could have been one of your players, but I, of course, I didn't. You know, I've been standing in front of a legend, so I'm not really going to open my mouth like that. But anyway, he uh, very, very complimentary in 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 our in our individual efforts and our team effort. And and you know, I'm sure he knew what was going on more so than anybody. You know, because he needed to show the people that he worked for that he should, you know, get an opportunity to, re- to recruit blacks. You know, and I mean. And he had tried, you know, he sent me a letter, but I'm, 
way out in California. So that's not, you know, that's not a real good move to go from Santa Barbara to Tuscaloosa at that point in time, you know, not, you know, it's probably cool now, but it wasn't in, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, like he, he was, as I said earlier, very complimentary and, and was respectful for our program, just as we were respectful for himself. Now, of course, um, you know, in 1970, Alabama, as we've been talking about, was an all-white team. Texas had just won the national title in 1969, the last all-white team to win the national title. Wilbur Jackson was a freshman at Alabama in the fall of 1970. He was in the stands that day at Legion Field. He was the first recruited uh, African-American football player at the University of Alabama, but he had not yet played um, for the University of Alabama, at least not for the varsity. And I don't think for a freshman team either. So, um, you know, why, why do you think, um, why do you think by all accounts, Bear Bryant after this game was, was in a way thankful that USC had played as well as it had? Well, in, in my personal opinion, I think he was, he was able to go and get the best talent that he could get, whether they were white, black, green, or brown, you know what I mean? And that, that in itself, a great football coach or, or any football coach wants, you know, to, to win. And that's uh, the goal of any football program, you know, in America and in, in high school and whatever, you know, to win. And, and, but in order to do that, you need, you need really good talent and, and not that they didn't have good talent. They had great talent, but there was still a bunch of it out there that he could, he could, you know, go through the bushes and, and recruit and bring into the program, you know, now, and most of those black players were, were going to the black colleges at the time or, or were going to the Midwest or going out to the West coast. So, so, I, and I'm sure John Mitchell, who is the second, uh, black player, he, he was at Arizona Western getting ready to come to SC and, uh, coach Brian called winner that and, and the rest of history, he, he became, he became a, <laughs> an Alabama player of, of, of great renown and a, and a long-time NFL coach. And, and so, you know, I mean, it just opened a door in many different ways, uh, uh, you know, for football, and, and which is the most obvious. But, you know, other ways, you know, it, it gave the opportunity for black folks in, in, uh, in, the, in the South, in that area, to be able to, be, you know, be proud and, and, and kind of tell people, well, you know, we could always do it. We just we needed a chance. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, Sam. Um, I was interviewing UW Clement today, Judge UW Clement, uh, civil rights right. icon mm-hmm. in Alabama. And at the time this game was played, he was suing the University of Alabama for not recruiting African American players. He had deposed. And what 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 year was that? What year was that? 1969, he filed the suit. The suit was actually still, uh, you know, it was still playing out in the fall of 1970. Wow. And he had deposed Paul Bryant. And, and he, his theory is, you know, that, that Bear Bryant, um, you know, had not, um, recruited more African American players. Um, you know, not just because it, it would have been hard to do so, but because it, it would have been uh, with the white fan base an unpopular move. And he said this game, he was one of he, he was he was rooting for USC. And he said, you know, 
the African-American community was rooting for USC because, uh, you know, they're playing an all-white segregated team, but also, you know, what it what it would represent in terms of change. And he said this game, although Wilbur Jackson was already there and um, Alabama had lost to an integrated team from Missouri a couple of years ago, earlier, it lost. This was the game that changed everything, basically, he said. What does it mean to you to have been a part of that? Well, you know, as a player, you just got to go play. You know, you, you you don't have any – I mean, you want to play well and you want to be remembered uh, and you want to leave a mark, you know. And But, you know, sometimes it happens and you don't know it. And, and you know, especially in football, it's it's a lot of moving parts and, and, and you know, you're blessed with it. a lot of people that help you do whatever you do, you know. So for me, to be a part of something so special <laughs> – you know, and not having ever lived down south, you know, what I mean, it, it, it's, it's something that I'll never forget. It's, and and you know, as I tell my nieces and nephews and my my three younger brothers, you know, this is, this is our family legacy. You know, it's you know, it's I mean, it's a lot of other people's legacy too, but it's our family legacy that if you go play as hard as you can and 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 just play, don't don't try to manufacture anything, manipulate anything. You know, you never know what may happen and over the course of you know, 50 years, it was, it was a, a drop of water in the beginning. And now over the time you saw the tsunami of change that it, that it brought about. And that, you know, to be a part of that is, it's, it's so grateful. I'm so grateful. Uh, you know, because I watch people talk about it. Other people talk about it. I enjoy watching that better not talk about it because they, they put a lot more sauce on it. So it's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> We've been speaking with Sam Cunningham, Sam Bam Cunningham, who had an historic night 50 years ago this weekend at Legion Field in Birmingham, sparking change, and we're still feeling that change uh, and its effects now. Sam, thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Well, thank you, Jeremy.